0: This morning is from Micah 6, verses 1 through 8. This is what the Holy Scripture says.
1: Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord." but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God.
0: And with, oh wait, no, no, may God bless the reading of his word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Good morning everyone, I'm David, Director of Community Life here at King's Church, and we're continuing our series on Sharing God's Love. Which, as you might recall, um, is part of our vision statement, which is that King's Church wants to be a growing family, rooted in Jesus, sharing God's love to our neighbors and the world. And this, mer- this morning, as you heard from the scripture reading, we'll be shifting our focus away from Jonah, which we wrapped up last week, and we'll be focusing on the next two weeks on Micah eight. I'll be focusing on this verse's call to do justice and to love kindness, and next week Jason will be talking about what it means to walk humbly with our God. Now, though most of you don't may not know too much about the book of Micah, I would guess that most of you have heard Micah 6.8, the, the last verse that, part of the passage that we read, quoted or referenced at some point in time. It's a really well-known verse with a a wide appeal. For instance, if you go to the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., there's a a main reading room that you see in the picture, and there's all these different alcoves that are dedicated to different subjects, such as history or philosophy, and there's one alcove that's dedicated to religion, and on the plaque above that alcove is Micah 6-8. And not only that, presidents... Warren Harding and Jimmy Carter, two presidents who led very different lives and lived decades apart, both had the Bible open to this verse as they were sworn in during their inauguration. I think part of the wide appeal of this verse, of Micah 6 8, is that it captures virtues that we all admire, that we all long to have. Um, whether it's justice, kindness, maybe your translation might say mercy, and humility. But is this simply a verse about moral virtues and about being an upstanding person? My hope is that as we look at Micah 6.8 today and its context together, we will better understand God's requirement of justice and kindness, what he's calling us to do in this verse, as well as the motivation to live out this verse. How can we live out justice and kindness as we are called to do? Which brings me to my first point, the requirement of justice and kindness. The requirement of justice and kindness. As I prepared for the sermon, I wrestled a lot with fear, because to talk about justice today is like walking into a minefield. Part of it is our political climate. From a societal standpoint, we are deeply divided on what is just and fair and right when it comes to issues like immigration or police conduct. And when it comes to justice and the church, there is a whole other set of debates. Do we need to care more about injustice in this world? If we do, will we lose the gospel? What should the church's involvement in justice look like? Is our mission simply to preach the gospel and to evangelize to unbelievers? There are so many things to say about justice that can't be captured in one sermon. However, we do need to talk about justice about doing justice in the church, because in verses like Micah 6-8, it's there, and it's unavoidable. God commands us to do justice because it is part of our goodness before God. Now, it's important to first answer the question, how does the Bible define justice? The Hebrew word most commonly translated as justice is mishpat. And the same word is found in Micah 6.8. So how are we to understand mishpat? Tim Keller, in his book Generous Justice, which I really recommend on this topic if you want to learn more about it, defines mishpat as giving people what they are due, whether punishment or protection or care. And he derives this definition from Scripture. Leviticus 24.22 says, You shall have the same rule, mishpat, For the foreigner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. Here we see that the sojourner, the foreigner, and the native are to get what is due to them, whether it's punishment or acquittal. This is to be done on the basis of their deeds, not their ethnicity or their their social status within the community of Israel. But notice also that Keller's definition involves giving protection or care which is not how we typically think of justice, especially in our Western society. We think of punishment towards criminals, something along those lines. We see this idea in Proverbs, we see the idea of protection and care in Proverbs 31.9, which says, judge, mishpat, righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Here we need to let Scripture inform our definitions And in doing so, we see that justice involves defending the rights of the poor and needy so that they might get what they are due because it is the most vulnerable populations that often get mistreated, that are often taken advantage of and oppressed. Similarly, in Zechariah 7, 9 through 10, we read, "'Thus says the Lord of hosts, "'Render true judgments,' Mishpat, "'Show kindness and mercy to one another, Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And notice as well in this Zechariah passage that justice is deeply connected to kindness. It is in essence saying the one act of not oppressing the needy and the vulnerable is rendering true judgment and showing kindness and mercy. These verses not only help us understand biblical justice, but also shed light on how we are to understand Micah 6.8. If we're not careful, we can easily read this verse as three separate things that we're supposed to do. We can think, number one, we need to do justice. Number two, we need to love kindness. And number three, we need to walk humbly with our God. But I want to contend that doing justice and loving kindness are intimately connected, and they're inseparable. And how are they connected? Well, what's interesting is that the word kindness used in Micah 6.8 is the Hebrew word chesed. It has that guttural H, (laughs) so I will repeat that. Um, Now, I don't bring up the Hebrew to wow you with Hebrew knowledge, but because chesed is an important term that is really difficult to translate. It's a term that's primarily used of God's love towards his people. It is kindness, but it is more than kindness. It is God's steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness. One commentator, Dr. Bruce Waltke, on the use of chesed in Micah 6.8, puts it this way. The word chesed is usually found in a context where one of the parties is in a weaker situation and utterly dependent upon another who is in a stronger position and who accepts freely the responsibility of providing deliverance and protection to the one in need. That's why God's love is so often captured in Scripture by the word chesed. We clearly are the weaker party, and yet God, in His mercy and grace, freely decides and promises to provide deliverance, and salvation. Now listen to what the same commentator has to say about the relationship between chesed and mishpat. The practice of chesed is closely related to mishpat. Both pertain to the deliverance of an oppressed, weaker party by a stronger party. But whereas the latter puts the accent on the action, the former puts the accent on the On the attitude. So when God calls us to do justice and to love kindness in Micah, they're interwoven. It is an act of justice in the attitude of kindness and mercy, just as we saw in Zechariah. And just as justice and kindness are interwoven, we must recognize that in our world, the stronger and weaker parties are interwoven in a fabric of society, culture, And community. So an extremely practical outworking of doing justice is not only living an honest life, you know, treating everyone with equity and fairness, but for stronger parties to seek, to protect, to care, to give our most vulnerable people what is due to them as people made in the image of God. To do justice out of merciful love, is to restore both the broken people and the broken fabric of society, culture, and community in which they live. And let's be very honest. Most of us in this room are the stronger party, so to speak, in this world. We've been blessed with financial resources, social status, strong support networks, Unless we think that where we got to today, myself included, because of our hard work and thus have an absolute right to how we use our resources, if we're even more honest, we did a lot less than we think to get to where we are today. There's a a lot in our life that we did not determine and may have helped us. Our parents, our community, even the country, the century, the decade in which we were born. None of that was determined by us. We ought to say, as 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, what do we have that we have not received? We are stewards of God's gifts, not owners, and we are called to do justice, to be merciful to those in need. Do you recognize this? And how are you responding to God's command to do justice and to love kindness? Friends, I pray that in this moment you're not closing your heart, but instead you're opening your heart to see that God's heart and the call to justice and kindness is searching and convicting. I myself had to pause several times while preparing and just confess God, my heart is so unlike yours when it comes to justice and mercy. Forgive me. Now, the last thing I want is for you to walk away simply feeling weighed down by the guilt of how we fall short of this command. For guilt is neither an effective nor lasting motivation to do justice and to love kindness. Which brings me to my second point. The motivation for justice and kindness. The motivation for justice and kindness. To understand the proper motivation for justice and kindness, we turn to verses leading up to Micah 6.8 the verses that um, were read earlier. We look at verses one through seven, and these verses actually portray a legal drama. And in verse one, God calls Micah the prophet to be his prosecutor, his mouthpiece against Israel. And the mountains and hills are called upon to be witnesses. And God has an indictment against Israel. He has an accusation. And what is his indictment? In verse 4, he contends that they have been recipients of a great salvation, namely the Exodus. The Israelites were enslaved and oppressed, and God, out of his mercy and grace, freed them by his mighty hand. Not only that, in verse 5, he brought them safely into the promised land, despite opposition from unsavory characters that we read in Scripture, such as Balak, the king of Moab, who hired Balaam to curse them. And yet... They have not been living up to Micah 6-8. That's his accusation against them. And in verses 6 and 7, Micah captures Israel's response towards God's accusation with a bit of rhetorical exaggeration. If you listen to his words, he says in verses 6 and 7, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Israel's response to God's gracious salvation and the accusation of their moral failings was one of religious ritual and empty deeds. They thought the way to answer God was to bring increasingly extravagant offerings This attitude is captured by Micah's exaggeration in verse 7. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000s of rivers of oil? And why would they respond in this way? Why would Israel respond in this way to God's great salvation? At the heart of their problem is a desire to control God, to turn God's gracious covenant into a contract. What do I mean by that? Let's say that I tell you I'm looking to buy a house, and you, out of an act of extraordinary generosity, decide to liquidate your retirement savings, everything you have, and you buy me a house in cash. Now, that's obviously not going to happen, but um, first of all, I would be stunned, and I couldn't help but feel like I was in your debt. And that's a scary place for many of us to be. Because if you then, you know, came up to me and asked me, hey, can you babysit my kids or pick them up from school? I would almost certainly feel an obligation to do so. To make that my top priority. I would almost feel like I had to drop everything else I was doing to go do what you asked of me because of your amazing, extravagant, and generous gift. But if I were able to pay you back then I could say no. I would feel a lot better about saying no if you asked me to drive you to the airport or to watch your dog while you're on vacation. In fact, if I could buy you a bigger house and, and then a boat on top of that, then you would be in my debt, and I could feel pretty good about asking things of you. The attitude of unbelieving Israel was one where they thought they could please God through ritual sacrifice, that somehow they could repay him for what he had done, and in doing so, exercise control over him. They wanted to turn God's gracious covenant into a bargaining contract. But Micah is saying, You totally and completely misunderstand God. To have such an attitude is a misunderstanding of grace. God's grace towards them in salvation is so great that to possibly think about repaying him is. Complete and utter madness. And that is exactly what sin does to us. Pastor Tim Keller, again, likes to retell this conversation he had with one of his church members. Where she came up to him and told him that if we really understood grace, it's a very frightening concept. And here's the quote. I asked her what was so scary about unmerited free grace. She replied something like this. If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if it's really true that I'm a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. Then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. And it's that exact attitude of somehow thinking they could bargain with God that caused Israel and Micah's day to neglect justice. They became a society that was not just, but instead one with wicked scales and a bag of deceitful weights, as you see in Micah 6:11. When we think we can somehow turn God's covenant into a contract, that we can somehow repay God's grace, then we can diminish the weight of God's commands, his requirement for us to do justice and to love kindness. We think, God, I was pretty good this week. I went to church. I read my Bible every day. I didn't yell at my spouse. I've overall been a good parent and a good citizen So you can't ask much more of me. And we present our good deeds to God so that our hearts can be content with the minimum. But the opposite is true too. The only way we can begin to make a turn towards doing justice and loving kindness sincerely and fully, not as a minimum or out of guilt, is by understanding more deeply the greatness of God's grace. That is a debt that we cannot and should not even attempt to repay. Or else our justice done in kindness will just feel like another burden, or worse, it will turn into another religious ritual that we will use to bargain with God. I served at a homeless shelter this week, God. You can't ask much more of me. But when we recognize how utterly destitute we were in our spiritual condition, when we recognize that we are poor in spirit, As it says in Matthew 5, 3, we begin to truly relate and to understand with those who are materially poor. We cannot be indifferent towards them or say to them, pull yourself together any more than we could have said that to ourselves in our spiritual helplessness. We needed someone outside of ourselves to rescue us. We needed a rescuer. And when we recognize that that rescuer came to us in Jesus Christ, at the cost of his own life on that old rugged cross so that we might be made clean, given new life, adopted into his family, crowned with glory. Our hearts overflow with gratitude, thankfulness, and there are no limits to what he can ask of us. Because at the heart of it, Micah 6.8 is another way to say the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your mind, as well as a commandment that is so inseparably tied to it, that the the scribe asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus gave him the greatest commandment, but also couldn't, had to give the other commandment, because the, the two are so intimately connected. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And as Jesus explained in the parable of the Good Samaritan, our neighbor is everyone who is in need. We'll never be motivated to do justice and to love kindness joyfully without guilt or begrudgingly towards those in need, towards our neighbors, towards the poor and the oppressed till we understand and continue to reflect and grow in our understanding of the grace of God towards us in Jesus Christ. It's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 8-9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. It is only by understanding God's love that we can share it to those around us through the words of the gospel and through the acts of justice and mercy, not as a bargaining chip before God, but out of fullness, out of richness, out of all that he provides. I want to end with some very practical points of application for those who might be wondering, where do we go from here? The first point, and I didn't tell them I was going to say this, but we have an awesome team, the Love Your Neighbor team, that is already spearheading and organizing many various projects directly related to acts of justice and mercy. You can start by just participating in their events and projects, or even joining the team. And remember that doing justice is not meant to be an individualistic thing. That's how we so often think of it in our our Western minds. If you have a heart for a certain cause, get your friends, get your community group involved. Suggest it to the Love Your Neighbor team and see how maybe they can partner with you. Second, connect to those who are doing justice in so many various ways here at King's Church. For example, we have those who are fostering, those who have adopted, those who mentor, those who are in the foster system. Those are just some examples. Have them over for dinner and let them share their heart and their journey. You may catch a spark from them or you may realize that you just like to support them or do justice in a different way, and that's perfectly fine. The third is to think about how to do justice in all areas of your life. Perhaps you manage people or business. I would think that many of you are, have some level of authority over others. Are people getting their due? Are certain classes of people being taken advantage of? Where can your methods, policies, and management be more equitable and fair so that weaker parties are protected and not trampled upon? And the fourth point, pray. Pray regularly for our hearts to grow in this area. Pray for our Love Your Neighbor team. Pray for all those who are involved in doing justice here at King's Church, pray for opportunities to share God's love with our neighbors through justice and a right motivation rooted in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and um, I just confess that This is a topic that I have a lot to grow in, and I pray that for those who are feeling the same way, um, you would turn our hearts, um, allow us to see, allow the words of of James, which says that true religion is um, ministering to orphans and widows in their need, allow that to pierce us, and show us that we often have callous hearts. We often um, try to do the minimum. We don't understand your grace deeply enough. We don't understand that we were poor. We were the oppressed. We were those in need. And you, out of sheer goodness and grace, out of love for us, sent your son, Jesus, to become poor, to know to know us in our frailty and our weakness and to lift us up out of it, to bring us to a great estate of salvation, that we might enjoy the glories of heaven, that we might know you intimately. Father, teach us to imitate you faithfully. Um, Teach us to be motivated by your grace. We pray all this in your son's name, amen.